Okay, questions, thoughts, and we need microphones. Can we get two microphones? Oh, we got them. We got them. We're ready to go. Okay. Steve Sparks, but don't call him doctor. Good morning, boss. Um, should we feel sorry for Jerusalem? I'm sure that this was preordained. I'm just sure that this is what? The last bit? I... Their, their position in history was preordained. Well, yes, yes and no, it's both. The, the difficulty is we want to assume that if something's preordained, then it's not the person's fault, it's not their responsibility, it's God. The thing that I, I tried to argue when we did our first week on the series on predestination, and I know it's counterintuitive, and I know it's um, a mystery, is the Bible insists both. It's Jerusalem's fault, it's, it's those people's um, responsibility, they deserve real culpability for it, and yet um, this is all part of God's ultimate plan. Paul even makes the same point in Romans 11, um, that... Um, the, he did this in order that he might show his riches of grace to the Gentiles. We wouldn't have the gospel come to us if God didn't determine this way to happen. So I get your, I get your knee-jerk, like, okay, if it's ordained, then how can we feel? I get that. I just think the Bible again and again insists it's both. And I'm not trying to say that I know how to explain how it's both, just that the Bible insists it is both. So Joseph can say to his brothers, you meant this for evil against me, God meant it for good. Okay? Um, and I'd say something similar. Jerusalem meant the rejection of the Messiah for evil. God meant their rejection of the Messiah for good. And I don't know how that works. So I just say amen and try to, you know. So that's my short answer, Steve. That, which is to say, I don't know how it works, but I, I think, yes, we can pity Jerusalem. We can echo God's heart and Jesus' heart in weeping over Jerusalem. We can pity their fate. Oh, he wants the mic back. I think Steve wants the mic back, Anthony. My comment then is, why do we think schizophrenia is a bad thing? Um, no, no, I, I, I get it. In a simplistic reading, no, let's take, let's take go, to, go to Luke. In a simplistic reading, and whenever we're confronted with things that are hard, what Steve's picking up on is something I even mentioned last week. Whenever we're confronted with challenging things in the text, we've got two options. We can either, um, and John Piper talks about the golden rule of authors. If you're supposed to treat other people as you want to be treated, treat authors as you want to be treated. When authors give you things that have disjunct disconnection or um, juxtapose or there's some cognitive dissonance, we can either think, man, either Luke's messing up or Jesus is schizophrenic, or we can challenge and so what, what let me see if I can make your point even better, Steve, or stronger. Um, so in Luke 12, 49, right? Here Jesus announces, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that are already kindled. I'm impatient. I want the judgment to come. I'm, I, I came to cast fire on the earth. Verse 51. Um, do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, rather division. Okay. So we talked about how this is a, a, an emotional side of Jesus, his desire, what he yearns for, that isn't addressed very often. This doesn't, generally doesn't make it to our flannel graph, our children's cartoons, and, and yet it's an authentic and real expression at the heart of the Messiah. Luke, 
a chapter later has that same Jesus who's yearning for judgment, yearning for this vindication, weeping over the state of Jerusalem. To which one do you want to say, which one is it, Jesus? Are you yearning for the fire and the destruction? Are you weeping? Because he's weeping. He doesn't say here actually he weeps. It's the parallel account we reach. But he's mourning. He's lamenting Jerusalem's fate. How often, how often I would gather you up. Um, The same Luke's gospel, right? Go back to chapter uh, 11. Um, No, not 11, sorry. It's uh, the return of the 70. So that is 10. The same gospel that has Jesus, I came for fire, I wish you were here, has Jesus when the 70 return, verse 21, chapter 10, in that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father and Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things in the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Let me ask you, what is Jesus thankful for? What's he saying he's thankful for? God making people ignorant, and God opening other eyes. The very truths we'd call election predestination. I thank you, Father, that you have hidden. Who does the hiding here? God does the hiding. You have hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. God, this is actually the text that, that got us to set on the calendar map our series on election and predestination. Questions coming out of this text. Jesus rejoicing. What's he celebrating? He's celebrating God's sovereign prerogative to choose who sees and who doesn't. And not just God's eye-opening activity, but God's hiding activity. And Jesus is celebrating, rejoicing in it, right? I got, the, I got the opportunity once when I was at Master's College to sit in a car for 20 minutes with R.C. Sproul and his wife. My, uh, my friend PJ was on student life committee. R.C. Sproul was coming in to speak at our student life conference. He said, hey, I'm picking up R.C. at his uh, hotel. Do you want to tag along? I said, you bet. And, um, and so R.C. and his, his wife, um, if you don't know who R.C. Sproul is, he's just a great teacher. And he's also a staunchly on board with what we've been talking about with election predestination. And that was honestly the one question I got to ask. I get, I, I don't want to minimize, Steve, your, the, the tension you're seeing there. I, f- I felt it as well. And the one question I asked R.C. was exactly this. R.C., I didn't call him R.C., Dr. Sproul. You know, I didn't say R.C. Uh, Dr. Sproul, can I ask you a question? I'm in the front seat, and he, he's sitting next to his wife, and I'm sure he's like, oh, boy. Um, and I said, Dr. Sproul, I get, I get that God is sovereign over salvation. I'm fully on board with that. And I'm fully on board with somehow God is able to make man responsible and accountable. What I wrestle with is Jesus' demonstration of anguish in chapter, uh, in Luke uh, 13. And he's celebrating the cause in chapter 10. I, I wrestle with that. I mean, if Jesus is, we- how is Jesus who's weeping over Jerusalem the same Jesus who's rejoicing that God is blinding eyes? Um, I don't have a simple answer for you, except that the emotional life of God, I think, is far more complicated than us. God's not a computer program who's got one steady pulse. God is a God who rejoices and delights and, and mourns and who, um, you know, Jesus shows us all the, all the uh, emotional movement of God. And so I just look at it and I say, okay, this is all true. 
I see a similar tension, if you go to Romans 9, a similar tension in the Apostle Paul as well. It makes you feel a little better. Because once again, Romans 9, probably unlike any other chapter in the Bible, is the strongest in insisting the sovereignty of God over all things, including salvation and judgment. And Paul begins this section on election and predestination and vessels of wrath prepared for destruction by saying, I am speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish, unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. That's true. Paul, I have unceasing anguish. I, I can almost pray, God damn me to hell and save them. I can almost pray that. Paul says. And then as he goes through Romans 9, 10, 11, trying to explain Israel's current state, he brings out some of the biggest guns of predestination election you're going to find in the scripture. Because he wants to defend God's promise to Israel didn't fail. Verse 6, it's not as though the word of God has failed. And then he starts pointing out how from the very beginning, God said this son, not that son. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. Right, God was demonstrating within the promise. He he kept a freedom and a prerogative of choice, um, specifically that he chose the one son over the other while the kids were in utero before they did anything good or bad. And then, as he starts applying that theology of God's sovereign choice to Israel, um, listen to some of the things. See, Paul will explain Israel's current state. Um, so, look at chapter eleven. Verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people before new. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? So he's going to argue the remnant. He's not rejected Israel totally. There's still a believing remnant. Verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, the rest were hardened. Now there Paul says, let me tell you what happened. Israel as a nation missed it. They rejected their Messiah. The elect received the grace. They opened their eyes. They didn't open their eyes. Their eyes were opened. The elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. And then, as he talks about how this will culminate into uh, the full inclusion of the Gentiles and Israel again being returned to, um, verse uh, 20 of chapter 11. This is true. They were broken off because of your unbelief, but you stand fast to your faith. Um, actually, no, 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, my brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel till the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Um, verse 32, for God has consigned all the disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So he's basically said, ultimately God is sovereign over mercying and God is sovereign over hardening. And, and his, his simple one sentence statement about Israel's current state in verse 11, I mean of chapter 11, verse 7, the elect obtained it, the rest were hardened. Okay, and he explains that. And he ends with a doxology as you see how this all intertwines together and culminates in the national conversion and restoration of Israel with a doxology, verse 33, Oh, the depths 
of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Now I see that same cognitive dissonance there, Steve. Which one is it, Paul? Do you have unceasing sorrow and anguish in your heart pleading with God that he might even curse and damn you to save them? Or is it praise God how he's working things together? Yes, apparently. And I get the emotional disconnect, I mean the emotional dissonance there. But it's the same thing I see Jesus doing, exulting and rejoicing in God's sovereign prerogative to open eyes, to hide things, and weeping over Jerusalem. Um, so I don't think it's an accident in the text. I don't think Luke made a mistake. I, I think these are some of the mysteries of God that we just have to wrestle with keeping our hearts on. I mean, I'll ask if Daniel or any of the elders want to jump in with another word, but I think both threads are true, and the temptation is to hold on to one and reject the other. So you either hold on to you're weeping for the lost, you're weeping for the world, and you reject any notion that God is sovereign. Or the other danger is you hold tightly to God as sovereign and you become a cold-hearted Calvinist and you get answers like William Carey got when he wanted to go to China. If God wants to save the heathen, he'll do it without the help of the likes of you. And somehow, both of these threads, Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, Jesus delighting over rejoicing in the Father's sovereign prerogative, I think are true. Um, the fact that I have difficulty emotionally with that just, I think, speaks to my weakness and limitations. So on the one hand, Steve, I absolutely see the, the disconnect that you see. I absolutely get it. I'm just saying I don't have an answer other than yes. That might be unsatisfying, but I see it, and I wanted everyone else to see it. You're not just seeing things. It's there. There is a tension and a challenging tension present in Romans 9 through 11 and in Luke, and I think in many other places in the Bible. Um, Every time God demonstrates his sorrow over why people are doing what they're doing, um, you know, we could, we could in, in theory, interject, yeah, but you could have given them grace so they didn't do it. I, I just, I don't, I don't think we, we are able to come to the Bible that way. But anyway, anyone else want to add anything to that or, or, or press further with that? I mean, Daniel does. Okay, microphone to Daniel. I'd, I'd, I'd add that I don't think it's schizophrenia because I don't think he's jumping back and forth. One day he's sorry about it, the next day he's glad about it. I think they're both true at the same time. Yeah. Similar to if you, if you have a loved one who's suffering and about to die, there is a joy in their death. You're so glad that their suffering's over. And then at the same time, you're weeping and mourning because you want them back. And, and it's that kind of tension where it's both and, not a schizophrenia where you, you, your, your mind's split and one day it's this and one day it's that. Yeah, no, I, amen. And it's not as though Paul some days is praising God for Israel's fate and some days mourning Israel's fate. He's able in what takes 10 minutes to read to say both. Um, somehow these are simultaneous emotional states, yeah. Amen. Anybody else? That was heavy. Good. Good question. Good observation. Heavy. Anything from either last week, Jesus sleeping over the Jerusalem, or this week, uh, Jesus at the dinner party? 
because I can't let you out early because of children's ministry. Oh, Linda. Okay, so from today, because um, that was before you got to it, that was one of my questions about how this person got there. Were they invited? Because it seems like if it's a dinner for with the Pharisees, they would have only invited the most important people to come. Yeah, Jesus tells the host exactly that. You shouldn't do it, but the assumption by telling him you shouldn't is that's what he does. Right. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, it is Jesus' common practice we've seen before to, once he's healed people, to send them away. Right. Because typically, for one, they're overjoyed and probably just going to tell everyone what happened. Mm. But also, if that person stayed... I mean, they would be a distraction to the rest of sure. the dinner because everyone would be so amazed and, you know, enthralled with what happened that they wouldn't have been listening to the parable probably and they wouldn't have paid attention to anything else that happened because they'd be focused on that. Yeah. So what are you suggesting is the cause for him being there? Just for what? For the, what are you suggesting is the reason why the man with the dropsy is there? Oh, I'm not arguing about oh, that, okay. but I'm okay. just, like I said, that was my original okay. question to myself before you got to that point. But it just seems like I'm, I'm not sure I agree with the plant part. Okay. The plant, I and, I and I can't prove it. I think it's the most likely possibility, um, but I, I couldn't, I wouldn't die on that hill. That there's two reasons. One, Jesus telling him to go. You're right. He could. The guy could have been a legitimate dinner guest, and Jesus told him to go. Probably the strongest for me is when Jesus sees them, and the flow is they get there, they haven't even started, behold, here's this guy. And then Jesus answers the Pharisees and the scribes, as if, to, like, how is he answering them if they have nothing to do with him being there? That, that doesn't make much sense to me. It's, you know, you'll walk in somewhere and someone's played a trick or they put a sign up and you see it. What do you guys do? You, you, you respond to what you see and what you encounter by talking to people as if they're responsible. So he sees this guy, and Jesus answers them. Now, I know there's a Greek idiom that, that could, um, could be making more of it than it is, but I'm, I'm reading that as Jesus understanding they're responsible for him being here. And so the assumed, he's reading the subtext, will you do a miracle on the Sabbath? So he answers them, is it lawful to do a heal on the Sabbath? That flow of thought assumes they have some responsibility for this guy being here. I mean, it starts with them watching him. It, to me, paints a picture of they've put a plant. This guy is here. What I mean by plant is they've set up the snare where Jesus will encounter this guy on the Sabbath, and they're going to see what he does. And it's, it's prearranged. It's not accidental. That's what I'm suggesting. This isn't, oh, what a happy coincidence. We have a sick person here. Now we can see if Jesus will heal him. I, I think it's been planned. But I couldn't prove that. I mean, I, I, I think the context points in that direction, but I, I, can't, I can't be dogmatic on the point. Because so. he's done that before where he's anticipated he already knew what they were going to say and sure. responded the same way. Sure, sure. But if they, if they have no responsibility for this person being here, I'm saying Luke's text narrative, he answered them. If they have no responsibility for this man being here, if this is a complete accident, or if this guy is like the woman who wandered in, um, who wiped Jesus' feet with her hair, she she's, doesn't belong here. She just sort of comes in. And, and those are the possibilities. He's the guest, he finds his own way in, or he's a plant. Um, maybe there's a fourth, but if he's, if he's the guy who wandered in, it makes less sense to me, Jesus answered to them and said. So, but like, like I said, it, it's, it, to me that makes the best picture, but... 
I, I grant that it could be he wandered in. Sure. Anyone else want to say anything to that? Sarah. Yeah, I just had something to add. Um, just the type of illness that he has, it's very obvious that he's ill, and it's, it'd be very obvious when he's healed. Mm. It's not someone that Jesus would have not noticed him being there. Right. Well, and this happens before they even have seated. I mean, it's boom, behold. I mean, you're right. You can't go very far with this guy with his symptoms and not see him and deal with him. The meal hasn't even, people haven't even taken their seats yet. So it's, it's immediate. Um, absolutely. Oh, Carol. Greg, you're sleeping on the job, man. Oh, okay. Oh, no. I'm, uh, I'm going to the uh, last verse. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Yes. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Yes. First uh, Peter 5. Likewise, you that are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, <clears throat> so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And I, I just wondered if you had any more comments on that because it's it's my observation. I thought uh, I really appreciated your your comment about uh, driving and uh, and having uh, <coughs> dri having other drivers that don't appreciate your position and, and who you are um, because I, you've I had that happen too, Carol. <laughs> oh, we we oh. all we all think like that, but I, I guess I'm see if you agree with this thought. Pride is is the at the root of just about every sin that there is, right. all the way from the top down, uh, in the spiritual realm and, and in the in the business realm and in every realm, we just have this tendency. I know myself. I I really get upset when somebody doesn't realize who I am, you know, or or what position I should have, you know, right. or the respect I should have, or you know, do you agree with that? That oh, and no, Amen. And not only that, but C.S. Lewis points out that pride. Whereas pride is the reason the devil fell, as best as we can tell. So it's, it's the start of it all is pride. Pride can also team up with every other sin and make it twice as bad. So desire for material and greed is one thing. Add it with pride, now I want more than you. Right? It's not just I want stuff. I want more stuff. And so pride can, can again, team up with other sins that are bad in and of themselves and make them even worse. You know what I mean? Um, and uh, it, it can pair up with all sorts of things. And so what Jesus is introducing is an entirely different measuring scale at the end there, uh, so that Paul can say, precisely because of the length and the depth to which Jesus humbled himself, he's been exalted. And we're to have this mind in ourselves. So really, if I have that mind in myself, when somebody cuts me off or somebody's driving by my estimation poorly, um, what a wonderful opportunity for me to humble myself. I don't think that. I should. So I'm because I'm running around for the monopoly money. I want the I want the payoff now. I mean, there's an eschatological element to this. You can have your reward now. We'll see this more next week. You can have your reward now. The people you invite will invite you back. Well done, good job, you have your payment. Or you can conduct yourself in such a way that you get paid then and it endures. So I can, I can get the slightly better seat than you. I get my monopoly money. Or I can humble myself now and be exalted in due course. So th that's the, what Jesus introduces. I mean, that's the point that the commentator I read was making, that without, that without verse 11, Jesus is just giving them tips 
but assuming the same goal, assuming the same value system. Just here's a better way to get what you want. And verse 11 tells us, no, if you'll humble yourself, then you really... So there's a sense in which wanting true honor is fine. If you want true honor, the honor that comes from God. I mean, go, go, to, go to John 5. Jesus doesn't call on us to be purely sadists. What he calls on us to do is to really have values. I mean, this is the type of stuff Piper talks about when pursuing pleasure. You, you set your sights far too low. It's the same logic a parent says to a kid, don't eat that, you'll spoil your dinner. Like, I got this great dinner planned, and you want the ring pop, and you're going to ruin your dinner. If you really appreciated what was valuable and worthwhile, you'd put the ring pop aside. So in John 5, Jesus gives this scathing indictment to the, to the Jews in verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God. And the concept is these are mutually exclusive goals. You can't do both. That the pursuit of the one will block the other. And um, I want glory. And the next question should be, okay, from whom? If you want glory from God, go at it. Be a hedonist. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, pursue that goal. The rebuke is... You just want glory from man. And, that, and that's the logic back in Luke of where we're to go. They're so busy running around getting honor now, they're dishonoring the host of the banquet. I gotta go get to my oak, my oak, my yoke of oxen. I put oak in, oak is yoke and oxen mixed. You get, anyway. Um, what? Yokesen. Yokesen. There you go, exactly. Um, and. And so the, the irony is going to be that while they're so busy running around wondering who's got the best chair and who on my guest list can invite me back, they're ignoring the, the invitation of the, of, the, of the marriage feast and they're insulting him. And consequently, they're going to be shut out and they're going to turn around and realize they were so busy wondering who was up and who was down and who had the good seat and who got invited back that actually you got kicked out of the kingdom. That's, that's the, the flow of the logic. So no, absolutely. I should seek, we should seek, and we should view opportunities to humble ourselves as good things. It's totally counterintuitive, but that's the logic of Jesus. Daniel has the mic, and then Dennis behind Daniel. What was your reference in John 5? Oh, John 5.44. Sorry, John 5.44. Oh, did you have something to say, Daniel? You're just holding the mic as a placeholder. I just... He's <laughs> Oh, okay. He's giving you work. He's giving you a job. Well, you, you mentioned uh, Philippians 2. is is just uh, Jesus was more than just a teacher. He lived yeah. a humble life. And, yeah. he, and Paul said you need to have this desire. You should be um, have this attitude as Christ Jesus. And that's just humbling mm. to know that as the disciples look back and as Paul looked at his life, that he lived what he taught. And he lived it perfectly, and not that we yeah. do, but that should be our goal in our lives, to let Christ live in us. Well, and that's the command in Philippians. Have this mind in yourselves that was in Christ. Which mind? The one that he humbled himself, and therefore God exalted him. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, and the other, if we also get a hold of this, according to James, it'll gut the overwhelming majority of our anger. What causes quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not this? You have desires? Get this man a mic. And you fight and you quarrel and you cannot have. But no, there's people who listen, Dave. You don't you want to get advertisements My for your question. class? Oh, for your, well, I'm not done yet. Hold on. I'm just getting you ready. 
Um, and then you're going to close this out. You'll be the final word. Uh, but isn't most of our anger, I expect, I have a right to, I demand, I ought to get. When I don't get it, I act like a potentate. I act like a king, and I will pour out my wrath. You'll be sorry you crossed me, right? I mean, that, that's a ton of our anger stems from, you don't treat me like that. You don't do that to me. You will give me respect. You, you know, me of all people, right? Do you know who I am? And if we could actually get this, so much of our anger would find its legs cut out from underneath us. That, that, that Spurgeon quote, when people think ill of you, don't let it bother you. They don't think nearly badly enough of you. Um, or something. I'm bungling. I've got to find it, but it's a great quote. Dave, and then we're done. Dave Lample, who teaches an ABF class. <laughs> See? The plug. What's a ring pop? What's... I'll have Zadik show you. Um, it's, it's a ring with a piece of candy on the top that you can then suck on. Looks like a lollipop, except it's on a ring. Okay. With that deep thought, with, with that deep thought, we will uh, we'll make it, we'll, we'll, call it, we'll call it a day. God bless everyone. See you all next week. <laughs>